Section 9 of Modern Magic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina. Modern Magic by Maximilian Schell de Vere. Chapter 5 Ghosts. Part 3 The apparition of the great Cardinal of Lorraine at the moment of death is better authenticated. D'Aubigny tells us, History, Univer, 1574, page 719, that the Queen Catherine of Medici was retiring one day at an earlier hour than usual, in the presence of the King of Navarre, the Archbishop of Lyons, and a number of eminent persons, when she suddenly hid her eyes under her hands and cried piteously for help. She made great efforts to point out to the bystanders the form of the cardinal, whom she saw standing at the foot of her bed and offering her his hand. She exclaimed repeatedly, Monsieur le Cardinal, I have nothing to do with you and was in a state of most fearful excitement. At last, one of the courtiers had the wit to go to the cardinal's house, and soon returned with the appalling news that the great man had died in that very hour. To this class of cases belongs also the well-known vision of Lord Lyttelton, who had been warned that he would die on a certain day at midnight, and who did die at the appointed hour, although his friends had purposely advanced every clock and watch in the house by half an hour, and he himself had gone to bed with his mind relieved of all anxiety. Jarvis, in his Accredited Ghost Stories, page 13, relates the following remarkable case. Quote, when General Stuart was governor of San Domingo, in the early part of our War of Independence, he was one day anxiously awaiting a certain Major von Blomberg, who had been expected for some time. At last he determined to dictate to his secretary a dispatch to the home government on this subject when steps were heard outside and the major himself entered desiring to confer with the governor in private he said when you return to england pray go into dorsetshire to such and such a farm where you will find my son the fruit of a secret union with lady lang take care of the poor orphan. The woman who has reared him has the papers that establish his legitimacy. They are in a red Morocco pocket-book. Open it and make the best use you can of the papers you will find. You will never see me again. Thereupon 
the major walked away but nobody else had seen him come or go and nobody had opened the house for him a few days later news reached the island that the vessel on which blomberg had taken passage had foundered and all hands had perished at the very hour when the former had appeared to his friend the governor it became also known that the two friends had pledged each other not only that the survivor should take care of the children of him who died first but also that he should make an effort to appear to him if permitted to do so the governor found everything as it had been told him he took charge of his friend's son who became a protege of queen charlotte when she heard the remarkable story and was educated as a companion of the future george the fourth lord byron tells the following story of captain kidd he was lying one night in his cabin asleep when he suddenly felt oppressed by a heavy weight apparently resting on him he opened his eyes and by the feeble light of a small lamp he fancied he saw his brother dressed in full uniform and leaning across the bed under the impression that the whole is a mere idle delusion of his senses he turns over and falls asleep once more but the sense of oppression returns and upon opening his eyes he sees the same image as before now he tries to seize it and to his amazement touches something wet this terrifies him and he calls a brother officer but when the latter enters nothing is to be seen after the lapse of several months captain kidd received information that in that same night his brother had been drowned in the indian sea he himself told the story to lord byron and the latter endorsed its accuracy monthly review eighteen thirty page two twenty nine one of the most remarkable interviews of this kind which continued for some time and led to a prolonged and interesting conversation during which the three senses of sight hearing and touch were alike engaged is that which a mrs bargrave had on the eighth of september eighteen o five according to an account given by jarvis accredited ghost stories london eighteen twenty three she was sitting in her house in canterbury in a state of great despondency when a friend of hers miss veal who lived at dover and whom she had not seen for two years and a half entered the room the two ladies had formerly been very intimate and found equal comfort during a period of great sorrow in reading together works treating of future life and similar subjects her friend wore a travelling suit and the clocks were striking noon 
as she entered. Mrs. Bargrave wished to embrace her, but Miss Veal held a hand before her eyes, stating that she was unwell, and drew back. She then added that she was on the point of making a long journey, and feeling an irresistible desire to see her friend once more, she had come to Canterbury. She sat down in an armchair and began a lengthened conversation, during which she begged her friend's pardon for having so long neglected her, and gradually turned to the subject which had been uppermost in Mrs. Bargrave's mind, the views entertained by various authors of the life after death. She attempted to console the latter, assuring her that, quote, A moment of future bliss was ample compensation for all earthly sufferings, and that, if the eyes of our mind were as open as those of the body, we should see a number of higher beings ready for our protection. End quote. She declined, however, reading certain verses aloud at her friend's request, quote, because holding her head low gave her the headache, end quote. She frequently passed her hand over her face, but at last begged Mrs. Bargrave to write a letter to her brother, which surprised her friend very much, for in the letter she wished her brother to distribute certain rings and sums of money belonging to her among friends and kinsmen. At this time she appeared to be growing ill again, and Mrs. Bargrave moved close up to her in order to support her. In doing so she touched her dress and praised the materials, whereupon Miss Veal told her that it was recently made, but of a silk which had been cleaned. Then she inquired after Mrs. Bargrave's daughter, and the latter went to a neighboring house to fetch her. On her way back she saw Miss Veal at a distance in the street, which was full of people, as it happened to be market-day. But before she could overtake her, her friend had turned round a corner and disappeared. Upon inquiry, it appeared that Miss Veal, whom she had thus seen, whose dress she had touched, and with whom she had conversed for nearly two hours, had died the day before. When the question was discussed with the relatives of the deceased, it was found that she had communicated several secrets to her Canterbury friend. The fact that her dress was made of an old silk stuff was known to but one person, who had done the cleaning and made the dress, which she recognized instantly from the description. She had also acknowledged to Mrs. Bargrave her indebtedness to a Mr. Breton for an annual pension of ten pounds, a fact which had been utterly unknown 
during her lifetime. In Germany, a number of such cases are reported, and often by men whose names alone would give authority to their statements. Thus, the philosopher Schopenhauer, Parerga, etc., 1, page 277, mentions a sick servant girl in Frankfurt on the Main, who died one night at the Jewish hospital of the former free city. Early the next morning, her sister and her niece, who lived several miles from town, appeared at the gate of the institution to make inquiries about their kinswoman. Both, though living far apart, had seen her distinctly during the preceding night, and hence their anxiety. The famous writer, E. M. Arndt, also quotes a number of striking revelations which were in this manner made to a lady of his acquaintance. Thus he was once, in 1811, visiting the island of Rügen in the Baltic, and having been actively engaged all day, was sitting in an easy chair, quietly nodding. Suddenly he sees his dear old aunt Sophie standing before him, on her face her well-known sweet smile and in her arms her two little boys whom he loved like his own she was holding them out to him as if she wished to say by this gesture take care of the little ones the next day his brother joined him and brought him the news that their aunt had died on the preceding evening at the hour when she had appeared to Arndt. Wieland, even, by no means given to credit easily accounts of supernatural occurrences, mentions in his Euthanasia a Protestant lady of his acquaintance, whose mind was frequently filled with extraordinary visions. She was a somnambulist and subject the cataleptic attacks. A Benedictine monk, an old friend of the family, had been ordered to Bellinzona in Switzerland, but his correspondence with his friends had never been interrupted for years. Years after his removal, the above-mentioned lady was taken ill, and at once predicted the day and hour of her death. On the appointed day she was cheerful and perfectly composed. At a certain hour, however, she raised herself slightly on her couch and said with a sweet smile, Now it is time for me to go and say good-bye to Father C. She immediately fell asleep, then awoke again, spoke a few words, and died. At the same hour, the monk was sitting in Bellinzona at his writing-table, a so-called Pandora, a musical instrument, by his side. Suddenly he hears a noise like an explosion, and looking up startled, sees a white figure, 
in whom he at once recognizes his distant friend by her sweet smile. When he examined his instrument, he found the sounding-board cracked, which, no doubt, had given rise to his hearing what he considered a warning voice. The Reverend Mr. Oberlin, well known and much revered in Germany, and by no means forgotten in our own country, where a prosperous college still bears his name, declares in his memoirs that he had for nine years constant intercourse with his deceased wife. He saw her for the first time after her death in broad daylight, and when he was wide awake. Afterwards, the conversations were carried on partly in the day and partly at night. Other people in the village in which he lived saw her as well as himself. Nor was it by the eye only that the pious, excellent man judged of her presence. Frequently, when he extended his hand, he would feel his fingers gently pressed, as his wife had been in the habit of doing when she passed by him and would not stop. But there was much bitterness and sorrow also mixed up with the sweetness of these mysterious relations. The passionate attachment of husband and wife could ill brook the terrible barrier that separated them from each other, and often the latter would look so wretched and express her grief in such heart-rending words that the poor minister was deeply afflicted. The impression produced on his mind was that her soul, forced for unknown reasons to remain for some time in an intermediate state, remained warmly attached to earthly friends, and lamented the inability to confer with them after the manner of men. After nine years the husband's visions suddenly ended, and he was informed in a dream that his wife had been admitted into a higher heaven, where she enjoyed the promised peace with her Saviour, but could no longer commune with mortal beings. It is well known that even the great reformer Martin Luther knew of several similar cases, and in his Table Talk mentions more than one remarkable instance. Another well-known and much-discussed occurrence of this kind happened in the days of Mazarin, and created a great sensation in the highest circles at Paris. A Marquis of Rambouillet and a Marquis of Précy, intimate friends, had agreed to inform each other of their fate after death. The former was ordered to the army in Flanders, while the other remained in the capital. Here he was taken ill with a fever, several weeks after parting with his friend, 
and as he was one morning towards six o'clock lying in bed awake the curtains were suddenly drawn aside and his friend dressed as usual booted and spurred was standing before him overjoyed he was about to embrace him but his friend drew back and said that he had come only to keep his promise after having been killed in a skirmish the day before and that Presi also would share his fate in the first combat in which he should be engaged the latter thinks his friend is joking jumps up and tries to seize him but he feels nothing the vision however is still there rambouillet even shows him the fatal wound in his thigh from which the blood seems still to be flowing then only he disappears and Presi remains utterly overcome at last he summons his valet rouses the whole house and causes every room and every passage to be searched no trace however is found and the whole vision is attributed to his fever but a few days later the mail arrives from flanders bringing the news that rambouillet had really fallen in such a skirmish and died from a wound in the thigh the prediction also was fulfilled for Presi fell afterwards in his first fight near saint antoine pedaval causes celebris twelve to sixty nine the parents of the well-known writer schubert were exceptionally endowed with magic powers of this kind the father once heard as he thought in a dream the voice of his aged mother who called upon him to come and visit her in the distant town in which she lived if he desired to see her once more before she died he rejected the idea that this was more than a common dream but soon he heard the voice repeating the warning now he jumped up and saw his mother standing before him extending her hand and saying christian gortlob farewell and may god bless you you will not see me again upon earth and with these words she disappeared although no one had apprehended such a calamity she had actually died at that hour after expressing in her last moments a most anxious desire to see her son once more tangible perceptions of persons dying at a distance are of course very rare still more than one such case is authoritatively stated among these the following a lawyer in paris had returned home and walked in order to reach his own bedroom through that of his brother to his great astonishment he saw the latter 
lying in his bed, received, however, no answer to his questions. Thereupon he walked up to the bed, touched his brother, and found the body icy cold. Of a sudden the form vanished, and the bed was empty. At that instant it flashed through his mind that he and his brother had promised each other that the one dying first should, if possible, give a sign to the survivor. When he recovered from the deep emotion caused by these thoughts, he left the room, and as he opened the door, he came across a number of men who bore the body of his brother, who had been killed by a fall from his horse. La Patrie, September 22, 1857. The Count of Neoli also was warned in a somewhat similar manner. He was at college and on the point of paying a visit to his paternal home, when a letter came telling him that his father was not quite well and that he had better postpone his visit a few days. Later letters from his mother mentioned nothing to cause him any uneasiness, but several days afterward, at one o'clock in the morning, he thought, apparently in a dream, that he saw a pale, ghastly figure rise slowly at the lower end of his bed, extend both arms, embrace him, and then sink slowly down again out of sight. He uttered heart-rending cries, and fell out of his bed, upsetting a chair and a table. When his tutor and a manservant rushed into the room, they found him lying unconscious on the floor, covered with cold, clammy perspiration, and strangely disfigured. As soon as he was restored to consciousness, he burst out into tears and assured them that his father had died and come to take leave of him. In vain did his friends try to calm his mind. He remained in a state of utter dejection. Three days later, a letter came from his mother bringing him the sad news that his father had died on that night and at the hour in which he had appeared by his bedside. The unfortunate Count could never entirely get rid of the overwhelming impression which this occurrence had made on his mind, and was, to the day of his death, firmly convinced of the reality of this meeting. Dix années d'émigration, Paris, 1865. We learn from such accounts that there prevails among all men, at all ages, a carefully repressed but almost irresistible belief in supernatural occurrences and in the close proximity of the spirit world. This belief is neither to be treated with ridicule 
nor to be objected to as unchristian, since it is an abiding witness that men entertain an ineradicable conviction of the immortality of the soul. No arguments can ever destroy in the minds of the vast majority of men this innate and intuitive faith. We may decline to believe with them the existence of supernatural agencies, as long as no experimental basis is offered. But we ought, at the same time, to be willing to modify our incredulity, as soon as an accumulation of facts appears to justify us in so doing. Our age is so completely given up to materialism with its ceaseless hurry and worry that we ought to hail with a sense of relief new powers which require examination and which offer to our intellectual faculties an untrodden field of investigation full of incidents refreshing to our weary mind and promising rich additions to our store of knowledge it can hardly be denied that there is at least a possibility of the existence of a higher spiritual power within us which often slumbering and altogether unknown or certainly unobserved during life becomes suddenly free to act in the hour of death this may be brought about by the fact that at that time the strength of the body is exhausted and earthly wants no longer press upon us while the spiritual part of our being largely relieved of its bondage becomes active in its own peculiar way and thus acquires a power which we are disposed to call a magic power this power is of course not used consciously for consciousness presupposes the control over our senses but it acts by intuitive impulse hence the wide difference existing between the so-called magic of charmers enchanters and conjurers justly abhorred and strictly prohibited by divine laws and the effects of such supreme efforts made by the soul which depend upon involuntary action and are never made subservient to wicked purposes the results of such exertions are generally impressions made apparently upon the eye or the ear but it need not be said that what is seen or heard in such cases is merely the effect of a deeply felt sensation in our soul which seeks an outward expression if our innermost being is thus suddenly appealed to as it were by the spirit 
of a dying friend or companion, his image arises instantaneously before our mind's eye, and we fancy we see him in bodily form, or our memory recalls the familiar sounds by which his appearance was wont to be accompanied. Dying musicians remind distant friends of their former relations by sweet sounds, and a sailor wounded to death appears in his uniform to relatives at home. The series of sights and sounds by which such intercourse is established varies from the simplest and faintest vision to an apparently clear and distinct perception of well-known forms, and constitute feeble, hardly perceptible sighs or sobs to words uttered aloud, or whole melodies clearly recited. If a living person, by such an unconscious but all-powerful effort of will, makes himself seen by others, we call the vision a double, in German a doppelganger. If he produces a state of dualism, such as has been mentioned before, and sees his own self in space before him, we speak of second sight. Such efforts are, however, by no means strictly limited to the moment of dissolution, when soul and body are already in the act of parting. They occur also in living persons, but almost invariably only in diseased persons. The exceptions belong to the small number of men in whom great excitement from without or a mysterious power of will cause a state of ecstasy. They are, in common parlance, beside themselves. In this condition, their soul is, for the moment, freed from the bondage in which it is held by its earthy companion, and such men become clairvoyants and prophets, or they are enabled actually to affect other men at a distance in various ways. Thus, it may very well be that strange visions, the hearing of mysterious voices, and especially the most familiar phenomenon, second sight, are, in reality, nothing more than symptoms of a thoroughly diseased system, and this explains very simply the frequency with which death follows such mysterious occurrences. Men have claimed and proved to the satisfaction of more or less considerable numbers of friends that they could, at will, cause a partial and momentary parting between their souls and their bodies. Here also antiquity is our first teacher. 
if we believe Pliny. Hist. Nat. 7. C. 52. Hermodimus could at his pleasure fall into a trance, and then let his soul proceed from his body to distant places. Upon being aroused, he reported what he had seen and heard abroad, and his statements were, in every case, fully confirmed. Cardinus also could voluntarily throw himself into a state of apparent syncope, as he tells us in most graphic words. De res var five three one eight c forty three the first sensation of which he was always fully conscious was a peculiar pain in the head which gradually extended downward along the spine and at last spread over the extremities evidently a purely nervous process then he felt as if a quote, door was opened and he himself was leaving his body end quote. whereupon he not only saw persons at a distance but noticed all that befell them and recalled it after he had recovered from the trance an old german abbe freitheim of whose remarkable work on steganography sixteen twenty one unfortunately only a few sheets have been preserved claims the power to commune with absent friends by the mere energy of his will quote, i can says he make known my thoughts to the initiated at a distance of many hundred miles without word writing or cipher by any messenger the latter cannot betray me for he knows nothing if needs be i can even dispense with the messenger if my correspondent should be buried in the deepest dungeon i could still convey to him my thoughts as clearly as fully and as frequently as might be desirable and all this quite simply without superstition without the aid of spirits the famous agrippa de occulta philos lugdene three page thirteen quotes the former writer and asserts that he also could by mere effort of will in a perfectly simple and natural manner convey his thoughts not to the initiated only but to any one even when his correspondent's present place of residence should be unknown the most remarkable and at the same time the best authenticated case of this kind is that of a high german official mentioned in a scientific paper nas zeitschrift für psychische arts eighteen twenty and frequently copied into others a counsellor wessermann claimed to be able to cause distant friends 
to dream of any subject he might choose. Whenever he awoke at night and made a determined effort to produce such an effect, he never failed, provided the nature of the desired dream was calculated to startle or deeply excite his friends. His power was tested in this manner. He engaged to cause a young officer, who was stationed at Aix-la-Chapelle, nearly fifty miles from his own home, to dream of a young lady who had died not long ago. It was eleven o'clock at night, but by some accident the lieutenant was not at home in bed, but at a friend's country seat, discussing the French campaign. Suddenly the colonel, his host, and he himself see at the same time the door open, a lady enter, salute them sadly, and beckon them to follow her. The two officers rise, and leave the room after her. But once out of doors, the figure disappears, and when they inquire of the sentinels standing guard outside, they are told that no one has entered. What made the matter more striking yet was the fact that although both men had seen the door open, this could not really have been so, for the wood had sprung and the door creaked badly whenever it was opened. The same vesterman could, in like manner, cause his friends to see his own person and to hear secrets which he seemed to whisper into their ears whenever he chose, but he admitted upon it that his will was not at all times equally strong, and that hence his efforts were not always equally successful. Cases of similar powers are very numerous. A very curious example was published in 1852 in a work on psychologic studies, Schlemmer, page 59. The author, who was a police agent in the Prussian service, asserted that persons who apprehended, being conducted to jail with special anxiety, often made themselves known there in advance, announcing their arrival by knocks at the gates, opening of doors, or footsteps heard in the room set aside for examining newcomers. One day, not the writer only, but all the prisoners in the same building, and even the sentinel at the gate, heard distinctly a great disturbance, and the rattling of chains in a cell exclusively appropriated to murderers. The next day a criminal was brought who had expressed such horror of this jail and made such resistance to the officials who were to carry him there that it had become necessary, after a great uproar, to chain him 
hands, and feet. It is well known that the mother of the great statesman Canning, at one time of her life, suffered under most mysterious, though harmless, nightly visitations. Her circumstances were such that she readily accepted the offer of a dwelling which stood unoccupied with the exception of the basement in which a carpenter had his workshop. At nightfall he and his workmen left the house, carefully locking the door, but night after night at twelve o'clock precisely work began once more in the abandoned part of the house as far as the ear could judge and the noise made by planing and sawing cutting and carving increased till the fearless old lady slipped down in her stocking feet and opened the door instantly the noise was hushed and she looked into the dark deserted room but as soon as she returned to her chamber the work began anew and continued for some time nor was she the only one who heard it but others the owner of the house included heard everything distinctly the following well-authenticated account of a posthumous appearance is not without its ludicrous element a court preacher in one of the little saxon duchies appeared once in bands and gowns before his sovereign bowing most humbly and reverently the duke asked what he desired but received no answer except another deep reverence a second question meets with the same reply whereupon the divine leaves the room descends the stairs and crosses the courtyard while the prince much surprised at his strange conduct stands at a window and watches him till he reaches the gates then he sends a page after him to try and ascertain what was the matter with the old gentleman but the page comes running back almost beside himself and reports that the minister had died a short while before the prince refuses to believe his report and sends a high official but the latter returns with the same report and this additional information the dying man had asked for writing materials in order to recommend his widow to his sovereign but had hardly commenced writing the letter when death surprised him the fragment was brought to the duke and convinced him that his faithful servant unable to reach him by letter and yet nervously anxious to approach him had spiritually appeared to him in his most familiar costume daumer mystagogue one page two twenty four 
before we regret such statements or treat them with ridicule it will be well to remember that men endowed with an extraordinary power of controlling certain faculties of body and soul are by no means rare and that the difference between them and those last mentioned consists only in the degree we speak of the power of sight and limit it ordinarily to a certain distance and yet a hottentot we are told can perceive the head of a gazelle in the dry uniform grass of an african plain at the distance of a thousand yards many men cannot hear sounds in nature which are perfectly audible to others while some persons hear even certain notes uttered by tiny insects which escape altogether the average hearing of man patients under treatment by baron reichenbach saw luminous objects and the appearance of lights hovering above ground where neither he nor any of his friends could perceive anything but utter darkness and the special gift with which some persons are endowed to feel as it were the presence of water and of metals below the surface is well authenticated poor kaspar hauser bred in darkness and solitude felt various and deep impressions upon his whole being during the first months of his free life whenever he came in contact with plants stones or metals the latter sent a current through all his limbs tobacco fields made him deadly sick and the vicinity of a graveyard gave him violent pains in his chest persons who were introduced to him for the first time sent a cold current through him and when they possessed a specially powerful physique they caused him abundant perspiration and often even convulsions the waves of sound he felt so much more acutely than others that he always continued to hear them with delight long after the last sound had passed away from the ears of others it may be fairly presumed that this extreme sensitiveness to outward impressions is originally possessed by all men but becomes gradually dulled and dimmed by constant repetition at the same time it may certainly be preserved in rare privileged cases or it may come back again to the body in a diseased or disordered condition and at the moment of disillusion nor is the power occasionally granted to men to control their senses limited to these even the spontaneous functions of the body are at times subject 
to the will of man. An Englishman, for instance, could at will modify the beating of his heart. Chain, New Dis, page 307, and a German produced, like a veritable ruminant, the anti-peristaltic motions of the stomach whenever he chose. Blumenbach, Phys, section 294. Other men have been known who could, at any moment, cause the familiar goose-skin or perspiration to appear in any part of the body, and many persons can move not only the ears, a lost faculty, according to Darwin, but even enlarge or contract the pupil of the eye, after the manner of cats and parrots. Even the circulation of the blood has been known, in a few rare cases, to have been subject to the will of men, and the great philosopher Kant did not hesitate to affirm, supported as he was by his own experience, that men could, if they were but resolute enough, master, by a mere effort of the will, not a few of their diseases. A striking evidence of the comparative facility with which men thus exceptionally gifted may be able to imitate certain magic phenomena was once given by an excellent mimic, whom Richard describes in his Theorie des Songes. He could change his features so completely that they assumed a death-like appearance. His senses lost gradually their power of perception, and the vital spirit was seen to withdraw from the outer world. A slow, quivering motion passed through his whole system from the feet upward, as if he wished to rise from the ground. After a while, all efforts of the body to remain upright proved fruitless. It looked as if life had actually begun to leave it already. At this moment he abandoned his deception, and was so utterly exhausted that he heard and saw, but with extreme difficulty. In the face of these facts, the possibility at least cannot be denied that certain specially endowed individuals may possess, in health or in disease, the power to perceive phenomena which appear all the more marvelous because they are beyond the reach of ordinary powers of perception. In our own day, superstition and wanton or cunningly devised imposture have been so largely mixed up with the subject that a strong and very natural prejudice has gradually grown up against the belief in ghosts. 
every strange appearance, every mysterious coincidence that escaped the most superficial investigation, was forthwith called a ghost. History records, besides, numerous cases in which the credulity of great men has been played upon for purposes of policy and statecraft. When the German Emperor Josef showed his great fondness of Augustus of Saxony, afterwards King of Poland, his Austrian counsellors became alarmed at the possible influence of such intimacy of their sovereign with a Protestant prince, and determined to break it off. Night after night, therefore, a fearful vision arose before the German emperor, rattling its chains and accusing the young prince of grievous heresy. Augustus, however, known already at that time for his gigantic strength, asked Yosef's permission to sleep in his room. When the ghost appeared as usual, the young prince sprang upon him, and feeling his flesh and blood threw him bodily out of a window of the second story into a deep fosse. The unfortunate king of Prussia, Frederick William II, fell soon after his ascension of the throne into the hands of designing men, who determined to profit by his great kindness of heart and his tendency to mysticism, and began to work upon him by supernatural apparitions. One of the most cunningly devised impostures of the kind was practiced upon King Gustavus III of Sweden by ambitious noblemen of his court. The scene was the ancient Lofo church in Drodingholm, a favorite residence of former Swedish monarchs. The king's physician, Ivan Hayden, learnt accidentally from the sexton that his master had been spending several nights in the building, in company with a few of his courtiers. Alarmed by this information, he persuaded the sexton to let him watch the proceedings from a secret place in the old steeple of the church. An opportunity came in the month of August 1782, and he had scarcely taken possession of his post when two of the royal secretaries came in, closed the door, and arranged a curious contrivance and the body of the building. To his great surprise and amusement, the doctor saw them fasten some horse-hairs to the heavy chandeliers suspended from the lofty ceiling, and then pinned to them masks sewed on to white floating garments. Finally, large quantities of incense were scattered on the floor 
and set on fire, while all lights, save a few thin candles, were extinguished. Then the king was ushered in with five of his courtiers, made to assume a peculiar, very irksome position, and all were asked to hold naked swords upon each other's breasts. Thereupon the first comer murmured certain formulas of conjuration, and performed some ceremonies, when his companion slowly drew up one of the masks. It was fashioned to resemble the great Gustavus Adolphus, and in the dimly lighted church, filled with dense smoke, it looked to all intents and purposes like a ghost arising from the vaults underneath. It disappeared as slowly into the darkness above, and was immediately followed by another mask representing Adolphus Frederick, and even the physician, who knew the secret, could not repress a shudder, so admirably was the whole contrived. Then followed a few flashes of lightning, during which the horsehairs were removed, lights were brought in, and the king, deeply moved and shedding silent tears, escorted from the building. The faithful physician watched his opportunity, and when a favorable hour appeared, revealed the secret to his master, and thus, fortunately for Sweden, defeated a very dangerous and most skillfully conducted conspiracy. Even ventriloquism has lent its aid to many an historical imposture as in the case of Francis I of France, whose valet, Louis of Brabant, possessed great skill in that art, and used it unsparingly for his own benefit, and to the advantage of courtiers who employed him for political purposes. He even persuaded the mother of a beautiful and wealthy young lady to give him her daughter's hand by imitating the voice of her former husband and commanding her to do so in order to release him from purgatory we fear that to this class of ghostly appearances must also be counted the almost historical white lady of the margraves of brandenburg End of section 9